Welcome to Story Trek. This is not a game show. This is a podcast, even though what you're hearing is the theme song to Star Trek, the animated series, which sounded like it was the theme song to a game show. But this is not a game show. This is a podcast. This is hosted by two gentlemen. My name is Marshall Hopkins. This is Michael Stratigakis. The reason we've played this track and this sound for you, even though it is one of the most 70s sounding things I've ever heard, is because this week we're going to be delving into the openings and intros of Star Trek shows. And you may be thinking to yourself, there's a story there. And Michael, you and I actually had a brief debate and I have agreed with you that yes, the openings do tell a part of the story. And I think that every single Star Trek show has an opening that tells something of the story of what you're going to get in some fashion or another to varying degrees of satisfaction or success. But there's story there and we're going to talk about it because this is Story Trek. Uh, it's it's really interesting speaking of the animated series. I mean, you really do get the sense that that uh, somebody needs to be wearing some really loud obnoxious outfits uh, mostly made out of suede or something with that music. Oh yeah. The animated series is where we should have gotten Dr. McCoy with the big like the V-neck uh, uh, yeah. the medallion. The yeah, yeah. It should have been. It should have been like in sick bay or something like that, hanging on the wall. And like the last episode, he takes it off, puts it on, and he's got that white smock on, and he like rips it off or something. Bare, bare <laughs> chest. Like you know, I'm ready for the seventies, Jim. Right. By the way, was there anything on the medallion that he wears? Was there any detail to it that anyone's picked up? That's a very good question. You would think that there would be a whole lore behind that at this point, but I don't think there is. I imagine someone out there has got to be a collector and knows something about that. That Maybe that's that's something that uh, people on one of the uh, Star Trek motion picture fan groups out there can uh, relay information about. But I think the place to start with talking about the stories of the title sequences of Trek, the intros of Trek, is really right back at the very beginning. When you talk about the original series in 1966, you're actually referring to uh, effects that were even earlierly created in 1964 for the pilot, The Cage, which didn't air. And in fact, when you look at the original series of Trek, there is actually the title sequence for the pilot. There's the title sequence for the second pilot. There's the first season title sequence, the second, and then third season title sequences. Each are different from each other. The biggest leap is between Where No Man Has Gone Before and this first season pilot, uh, first season intro. I knew that there were subtle differences between them, which cast members' names are on there. Um, and I did notice that the ship always travels from left to right. Yes, that's that's because the armature that held the ship was on the other side of the ship and there was no detail on that side either. <laughs> so if, you, if, you, if you ever see the Enterprise, the original series, turning the opposite direction, it's a flipped shot. They could not film that side. That side of the ship is unfilmable. It feels like that is a, a tradition yes. in Star Trek. And I thought that there was a story aspect to it. I thought that, call me crazy, call me stupid. I felt like that there was something about Western audiences or, you know, some of that effect where the ship travels from left to right. That is something that's repeated in almost every single opening sequence. Even Deep Space Nine, which does not have a ship, really, the camera tracks from left to right. And I thought that that was just something in keeping with the original series. And the original series did it as an accident or not an accident, but due to technical limitations. Well, you'll find that many times whenever you're trying to show anything as sort of an epic journey in cinema or TV, it's typically left to right because we read left to right. And so graphically, things we see on screen are easier to read left to right. So that's one of the main reasons that you see a lot of that. It's just good screen direction and good and good uh, direction just in general to have something consistently moving one direction. And we'll talk about the other sequences later, but there are some exceptions to that, major exceptions. But, uh, the, yeah, the original series intro sequence, actually we find it from uh, the cage and from where no man's gone before. There's actually no uh, opening monologue as it's become known with space, the final frontier. You know, that, that did not come at first. In fact, the first few episodes of the first season of the series continue to use the Where No Man Has Gone Before intro up until it was actually placed in an episode. I can't remember the, which episode it was at first. That's a great bit of original series trivia out there, which one first had the opening voiceover. I know it was one of the first, but it that did not appear right away. So with the first one, what we got was basically a, a very short, simple opening, ship coming across the screen, traveling from left to right, as you put 
traveling through the stars, no concept of uh, scale or anything like that because it's just stars spinning, you know, flying by. And the one thing that that it did do, which was actually pretty impressive as an effect at the time, was that it pushed in on the saucer section of the ship all the way to the bridge and you could see into the bridge of the ship. And and that's an effect, think about that, 1964. How many times you see that in film and television sci-fi where you're traveling something massive and it like tracks all the way in on something like someone looking out of a window or something like that or out from that. And that was something they were pulling off in 64. Well, even that kind of tracking shot where you just do a slow pull, that's obviously from Citizen Kane. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So the fact that you have this sci-fi TV show that's about wagon train to the stars and you're pulling techniques from Citizen Kane in the opening. That's pretty impressive. Yeah. I mean, the effects of the time were state of the art for television. And the title sequence was pretty short. It just goes right into the show for the pilot. Uh, the second one reuses a little bit of the first, but it's basically all almost all new. That it's it's pretty blasé, and you're just getting names. The ship flies by. We get the flyby in the where no man has gone before. We get the music that we know. Uh, that's all in there. But there's still that voiceover missing, which is a very key component of what's made the original series so iconic like even the star trek films you hear them many of them will end or start you know space the final frontier these are the voyages of the starship enterprise right and and depending on what flavor of trek you get you get it's ongoing mission it's continuing mission it's five-year mission right right <laughs> depending on which trek version you go to and then of course there's the, either to boldly go where no man or where no one has gone before these are these are all things that evolved over time there they weren't just simply birthed all at the same time um so so there is an evolution to it 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 kind of reminds me of the aspects of comic book history where you know there are certain characters where you take kind of wholesale and you don't realize that this is the product of you know decades of writers and creators coming up with every little thing. Somebody wrote that back in the 1940s or 50s or 60s. Yeah, the evolution of these things that we now just sort of accept as pop culture mainstays is interesting. I mean, the the opening of the original series, once it kicks in and we get the space, the final frontier, it actually makes a lot of sense for television at the time, because at the time, at that period, you know, you're tuning into any episode of the show in any order. Right. Maybe you're catching the 15th episode, maybe catching the 60th episode. And at any given time that you might catch the episode, there's that intro that basically states what the the show is about, what this ship, the Enterprise, is about. Right. You see the ship, and one of the things that comes into the title sequence for the first season is we start getting the ship traveling past planets. So we get a sense of it's going somewhere. It's not just traveling through space, but it's going somewhere. Right. And that's something that is a big difference between the first two title sequences. Of course, you get the flybys, which I I think was actually something that came out of an accident, if I'm not mistaken. Um, they were test footage and they ran out of time. And they needed something. So they just flew it by a couple times. <laughs> and, they, and they thought it would look really cool. Like, you know, zip in and the title of the name comes in. Very 60s, you know. Right. But yeah, the, the title sequence was made out of, you know, same thing like the rest of the show, you know, bubble gum and, you know, and, and popsicle sticks. How do you feel about the original titles versus the remastered titles? Because obviously the remastered, digitally remastered, but they're done very faithfully. Uh-huh. Um, you know, it's not quite the 1997 Star Wars edit. Um, but at the same time, it's obviously different. Do you prefer the more 60s slapdash? You know, you know what? I, I'm, I'm actually this brings up a great point about the remastering, because that's where a lot of people are going to see it now. I'm actually a fan of it visually. Right. I think it, it works. In the context that they actually went through and remastered the rest of the show, it wasn't just the title sequence. If they just done the title sequence, it would have really stood out. But the one part of the remaster that I was very disappointed with was actually the sound mix. Mm. Um, if you actually go back and listen to, they have HD versions of the original series on un- remastered. And if you go back and listen to the title sequence, the mix of the music and Kirk's voiceover is different. Kirk's voice is very distinct in the original one. In the new one, his, the music almost buries his voice. And his voice is, is, and they actually don't fix it until season two. 
I noticed that it's very subtle, but I've noticed that I've actually had to turn the sound up. And maybe that's a part of the reason why they re-recorded the title sequence and that and that mix, even the even the amount. I mean, I know it's a it's obviously like they're using newer microphones. They have better, cleaner mixes. But in effect, I feel like that was one part of the show that did not need to be re-recorded. I think it just needed to be cleaned up per se, like cleaning out the hiss or pop out of it. Right. I, I could have done without that. I actually don't mind the visual update. I actually mind the audio update more. The other, the other thing that's interesting to see is sort of the evolution of who's in the credits. You know, we get Shatner Nimoy, Shatner Nimoy, seasons one and two. Third season, DeForest Kelly is now in there. Right. Uh, we also get the alteration between the yellow gold text and blue text. Wait, which season did it change to blue? Third season. Third season. Okay. All season three. You can you can literally, if you see a title sequence and the title of Star Trek is in blue and you see the names in blue, you're watching a third season episode. Interesting. That's another detail I had not noticed. Uh, moving on to the next generation. Uh, actually, we probably should hold off because we have our favorite actually to talk about. Oh, the animated series. How quickly <laughs> I forgot about it. <laughs> it's the forgotten Trek series. It really is. It's forgotten for a reason. Yeah. I mean, it's like we, we it, it kept it, it, it. It's like we're going to keep everything that makes the original series tell the story of the ship traveling through space on a five year mission. I actually don't remember if the original the animated series says five year mission or continuing mission. But yeah, I, I mean, the animation is cheap even for its time. It's really cheap. Yeah. <laughs> It's so cheap that I think that Trey Parker and Matt Stone animation style would have been an improvement. Okay, so it still says five-year mission. Five-year mission. Okay, so that is at some point, I've often said, within the penumbra of the original series, I presume, or somewhere. I don't know. Nobody knows where the animated series really lies, I think. I don't know if it's year four or if it's year five or who knows. Well, the animated series as a whole is the carcass from which all of the Trek series feast. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we take what's interesting or relevant or useful for show de- for series detail and we just let it die out in the dust of the 70s. And some things are well used, like on Lower Decks, which we'll get to, um, Dr. Yeah. Tiana. Right. There's that. There's the fact that there's a Captain Robert April. You know, there's all kinds of little things that are brought into the, orig- the original series lore, so to speak, through the animated series. Right. But I, I think the most part, what we're looking at with the animated series is an attempt to to basically resurrect Star Trek as faithfully as possible as an animated show in a half hour block. The animated series just basically tries to mimic the original series intro for the most part, except you do get that sort of like end of end of title sequence cartoon freeze frame of ship over a planet with, you know, Star Trek created by Gene Roddenberry, blah, blah, blah. And then your little sort of your classic 70s like title card. For the most part, I mean, it goes back, it uses the yellow title cards that we saw in the original series. Mm. Uh, but the animation, it's like, uh, there's no scale to anything. The Enterprise literally just, they take a still image of the Enterprise and it just moves from left to right. Yeah. <laughs> it doesn't even like get larger. It just goes from left to right. I've seen motion comics that moved across screen better than that. And I, I think the reanimated series, though, is very fairly faithful in sort of giving the audience an understanding of the quality of the animation they're going to experience. Right. It's pretty much like that's the most exciting animation you're probably going to get in the entire episode. There's some, <laughs> there's some interesting art design through those shows, but ooh, the animation, it's it, it's 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 horrific. I mean, it looks good in still frame, but it's the animation of it that's it's horrific, not to mention the continuity. Right. And I I had attempted to be fair to it. I know in private chat where I'd made the argument that, you know, American animation at that time wasn't all that great um, and didn't really take a giant leap forward until the influence of Japanese animation from about the mid to late 70s. And still, despite that fact, for its time, even with American animation, at the end of the day, the animated series could have done better. I, I think that, you know, the real big leap, though, is going from the 60s to the 80s. Yeah. I mean, sort of forgetting about the 70s uh, mishap, if you will. <laughs> um, and, and you could see that in the opening title sequence for the first two seasons of The Next Generation. 
where we get basically bigger budgeted original series title sequence. We're starting off on planet Earth, and instead of, you know, flying by a planet, we're pulling away from a planet and flying by another planet and then flying by another planet until we're left in the vastness of space, you know, and understanding like, okay, we're leaving the solar system. We're going out into deep space. And here comes the voiceover with Patrick Stewart. It's the same voiceover read that we got from William Shatner, except now there's been some updates. Right. Our continuing mission where no one has gone before. Which I exactly I think that was first introduced in one of the movies. It well, the movies was ongoing. Right. Well, I meant in, where in Star Trek I meant where no one has gone before. That was well, this was actually the first introduction of it. Okay. Okay. If you if at the end of Star Trek two uh, it becomes ongoing mission and it's still boldly go where no man has gone before. That stays the same for uh, the intro to C- to Star Trek three. Right. Then there's no voiceover for four or five. And in the course of really when Star Trek six came out, we end with that voiceover with the captain's log ending with no one, no man corrected to no one. And that's the correction of the original series. It like Shatner actually never gives a read of the voiceover with no, where no one has gone before all the way through. Interesting. And in fact, he actually, if you look at the Star Trek movies, Kirk actually never says, does the opening monologue in this, in the movies. It's only done by Spock. That's right. I forgot about that. He does that at the end of Wrath of Khan. And the intro of uh, Search for Spock. Spock. That's right. And uh, if you get to the next generation, we're pulling back. We get this voiceover. The Enterprise zips away. We're treated to much better and updated effects. It just looks vastly better than everything you'd seen before. But it in the flybys and the sort of left to right, as you put it, and the planets and things like that, at least at the beginning, we're really treated to getting a sense of a the scale of the ship and b we're getting a sense of the quality of the show too that we're going to see as opposed to what we had seen in the 60s and and then into the 70s this is definitely much more on the feature level of the 1980s and it seems like that intro is specifically and intentionally telling you that you know this isn't your father's star trek this isn't just wooden sets and matte paintings oh yeah one of the small little details that you don't pick up when you first see it you have to watch a hundred or so times to notice it is that as the enterprise uh flies by underneath before its final jump to warp in that next generation title sequence if you look at the observation lounge windows you can see somebody moving past the windows wow um it's actually just nothing more than a couple of paper cutouts that they just used and and superimposed right but it's a small detail like that that was added to help give it just a just a hint a subtle hint of scale right and 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 that's something that keeps evolving when we get to the other series but you know the next generation you go to season three and we move away from the solar system of earth and the moon and jupiter and then that's where we get to deep space and we get these like nebulas and we get the get this large like view of the galaxy which i'm a little perplexed by to be honest Oh, how so? Well, you never, the Enterprise travels within basically one to two quarters of the of the Milky Way galaxy for the majority of the show. We're never actually treated to the galaxy as a whole. But in fact, if we were to put, maybe look at this in a different way, it could also be applying that this is as written a galaxy class starship perhaps it's also a nod to the fact that this is a deep space vessel it's not meant to just be you know popping back home whenever this ship is meant for long voyages yeah and i i could definitely see that you see the galaxy because it is a galaxy class starship they're designed or intended to or we're expected to where it gives the expectation that we are going to see more of the galaxy than we got to than we did in the original series everything about this opening feels like if you remember Star Trek, guess what? And I specifically remember watching the opening of the, you know, the the intro for the first episode the first time and saying, whoa, you know, just at the the graphics and the scale of it. And again, you know, this is 1980. So, you know, it didn't take that much to impress us then. But at this... Well, they they could actually see the left and right side of the ship then. Yeah, exactly. You could see both (laughs) sides of the ship. But you could also see, like, planets. You could see the Enterprise, like, whizzing past a star in other worlds. And it didn't look like, you know, it, 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 it didn't look like a world, but it looked like somebody put work into this to make sure you knew we're going places. 
Oh, absolutely. And there's still some flaws in the way it's built. I mean, I can see I can see seams in the next generation uh, title sequence, uh, specifically if you look at the star fields uh, as they transition from planet to the deep space shot of the Enterprise with the the planet. Mm-hmm. You'll notice the stars actually change direction that they're moving in the middle of the shot. Right. But the other thing I think that'd be remiss not to talk about here is the change of the theme of Star Trek. I, you know, we're given this you know, we're given the Jerry Goldsmith remix fanfare from the motion picture. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, Roddenberry jettisoned that original theme song from the 60s and obviously the one from the 70s. Right. <laughs> or this for this Goldsmith as the update and sort of as he put it, this this is this is Star Trek. Like Roddenberry felt that Jerry Goldsmith's score was the theme of Star Trek now. Right. And I think a lot of people now, they watch Next Generation and then they go back to the movies and they, wait a second, why is it using the Next Generation theme? Right. Yeah. If, especially if they'd seen the 60s show and they've heard that music and then they saw that, they're like, whoa. That's actually a great indicator of a generational gap. For example, if you were to ask somebody like hum or sing the theme to Star Trek, you know, I think you're going to have people of a certain age or a certain generation who are going to do the original series. And you're going to have people of a certain age and a certain generation who will do the motion picture slash, you know, uh, TNG era. Yeah. I think, you know, but I, I think that it really does become sort of a, a, a theme of an era of Trek that has carried forward. Yeah. And that, th- that theme did carry forward. I mean, Jerry Goldsmith did score Star Trek's five, Star Trek eight, mm-hmm. nine and ten. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that theme was reused and reused then and again and again. So after seven seasons of a show and basically, was that five movies, Mm -hmm. five movies, you've got, you know, a mainstay theme. Now you get to the next Trek show, Deep Space Nine. Yeah. And things take a pretty big turn. Deep Space Nine is kind of my favorite of the Star Trek openings. Uh, I remember first seeing it, and if you're accustomed to the original series, TNG, then you may say to yourself, what is this? At, at least that's what I was asking, like, where's the ship? You know, where are the planets? Where are we going to? The space station is actually in orbit of the planet Bajor, and you never see the planet Bajor. But it took me a while to realize that this is a slice of life. And what you're seeing is a day in the life of Deep Space Nine. You know, there's just a random asteroid that passes by. If you want action, hey, you're going to get that, especially seasons four through seven. Here's just what would normally have, like this, I, I kind of got it. This is Tuesday on this space station. You know, you have the traditional, now we don't have a ship, but the camera still pans from left to right. And as you go right, you see the space station. We close in on details of the station. You'll see ships coming and going, docking, leaving. You see people in spacesuits externally in space making repairs and things like that. You know, you can just imagine that like Major Kira is somewhere inside stressed because this ship is leaving without following protocols. And especially with the later seasons, as you get into the war plot line with Deep Space Nine, you kind of get this feeling that you kind of need this serenity as sort of a palate cleanser or just the calm before the storm in some cases. So yeah, I think that it's, it's my favorite opening because again, it just gives you a glimpse at, you know, let's slowly take you look at what this place is, what normally goes on on an average day. I would agree with you as far as the assessment of what it's showing you. I would say that a big part of the show's difficulty in, in grasping its audience and holding on to its audience and building its audience is also the fact that seasons one through three of the show, the intro is different. Right. There's a, this a different score and we're, we're treated to the meteor, as you put it, and then we're treated to the ship right before we have a runabout flyby that wipes to the title seat, title card. And then we're, we got the, sh- the space station rotating in space ever so slowly with this downbeat music. Mm-hmm. And, and it's 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 not that impressive. Yeah. It's, it's actually really dark. It's dull. And there's not much going on. And I think that that's what, in many ways, made Deep Space Nine hard for a lot of people to grasp. Is 
I actually find that the first few seasons of Deep Space Nine, the title sequence actually works against the show. It's as if, yep, this is about as exciting as it gets. And it's not that exciting. There's not much going on. And then you get to the later seasons and then you get the shuttles flying by. You have people working on repairing stuff. You have a ship docked on one of the columns. You see the Defiant pull away and go towards the, um, the wormhole. wormhole. And by and large, you get that classic like end button of a ship zipping away basically by using the wormhole versus warp drive. But there's, there's a lot more going on. And yeah, you never do see the planet. And you do really feel like this is in the middle of deep space. Like this is very clear. Right. This isn't, you know, there's no planets in this thing. But the details they bring in in later seasons, the re- redoing of the score, I think vastly helps the title sequence of this show and much better reflects the show itself as opposed to the first few seasons, which literally look like, all right, these are model test shots. We're going to put title cards over it. Yeah. I think that each title sequence, even in unintended ways, like you just described, kind of tell the story of what you're about to get. I think with Voyager, um, of, of course, as we know through the way Voyager was made, there was a big push to get eyeballs on this show early on. So I noticed that right off the bat, the very first thing you see in the Voyager intro, of course, it zooms left to right across the screen and it zips between a star and a solar flare. And immediately you get this sense that, okay, this is a Corvette that takes risks. Mm -hmm. And of course, it kind of intends to give you that feel. Obviously, then they show off some of the special effects. You zoom past planets. You have the sequence where it feels like it is sort of a bioluminescent fish traveling through this ocean. You see it as just some sort of cloud or nebula in space. It's really the first title sequence that it, that the object that we're showing off really feels like it's part of the environment around it. It's not just in front of it or passing passing by it. It's in front. It's actually part of it. Right. It is not traveling around objects or around planets. I was going to say, I think that this is our first accurate representation of a planet with rings around it when you literally see the Voyager like come up through you know what we you know in antiquated terms used to think were relatively solid they had a lot of uh, asteroids around them and in fact you can fit a whole ship through it if you wanted to. Well actually the, the that's funny that you bring that up because people have often talked about the scale of that scene that shot because that planet is way too small to have rings. I noticed that yes. And, and, like all the math and all the the reflection of the ship on the rings is a nice little detail, but it, it makes the scale of the ship linked to what we think we see much mm-hmm. more clearly and in fact makes it a much more implausible thing. That said, I mean, it really does feel almost like a National Geographic. We're traveling through space and we're going to see the exotic stuff here and there, experience the galaxy in a way that we haven't seen before. And then we get that bombastic Jerry Goldsmith score that, you know, is very, you know, obviously it's Jerry Goldsmith, but very different in its its, its rhythm and its scope to what we got out of Next Generation motion picture. Right. It feels more like the next uh, the next generation theme is bounding. It's, I think someone, I can't remember who described it as Captain Horatio Hornblower in space. Yes. And... Voyager sounds a lot more mysterious or maybe even hesitant. And of course, that fits with the show. They're in an area of space that is completely unfamiliar to them. All of that stuff does really reflect what Voyager is about. I mean, I mean, you get the nice beauty shots of the ship and you get like a, an ice planet that it flies over. I mean, we're getting all kinds of variety of stuff in these shots. This is clearly a step above what we saw with The Next Generation. It's a decade later. And it's clearly like we're we're going to show you what effects can do now. Exactly. One thing I noticed is that the very last shot in the opening, at least most of the versions I saw, is that Voyager, obviously it ends with it zipping into warp. But the place where it is going to, right, I think this is one of the first times where it appears to be warping into some sort of nebula. And the colors are these reddish orange hues that do not look very welcoming. And so you kind of get this sense in that they're going someplace dangerous. I, I kind of felt that using the color scheme, using the fact, you know, you could have just had them warping off into an empty, you know, black and spa- star field, just like normally. Using that, I felt like was a very smart, creative choice hmm. to give you the sense that they are not going any place that you are accustomed to. Hmm. Interesting. I hadn't thought about the use of the color of that before. It's a good point. You know, and I think that all of this beautiful symbolic stuff really kind of comes to a head with the next show. 
Oh, Enterprise. <laughs> I don't. Uh, this is probably, other than animated series, the one we'll probably talk the most about. <laughs> I have to say, on my notes on Enterprise, I get it. I get what they were going for, and it wants to work. It almost works. And like I said, intentionally or unintentionally, the intro tells the story of the episode. Like visually, I have no problem with it. You know, it's kind of cool. You go back in time, you see a history of different famous vessels or famous ships named Enterprise, uh, the HMS Enterprise, the Royal Navy Frigate, the Spirit of St. Louis, the Bell X-1 Space Shuttle Enterprise, the Mars Rover Sojourner, International Space Station, and then finally you have the Phoenix, Zephyr Cochran ship from Star Trek First Contact, and then the new but old proto Starfleet vessel, the Enterprise NX-01. Now let's talk about that song. Yeah, because there really are two intros to Enterprise. There is the intro that you watch and there's the intro that you hear. Yeah. Because I think muting it, you get a very different experience from one with the music. Yeah. So a few facts first. Uh, the song that we're called, uh, we're talking about is called Faith of the Heart. If you've ever seen a single episode of Enterprise, you know what we're talking about. Uh, there's no reason we're going to just give you a moment. You can pause this, go pl- look it up on YouTube. Once you hear it, you cannot unhear it. <laughs> Never for the rest of your life. Welcome back. <laughs> yes. <laughs> If you're laughing along with us, then you listen to that song. Yeah. Um, This was written by Diane Warren for Rod Stewart, and his version was on the soundtrack to the movie Patch Adams. Diane Warren, admittedly, is a legend. She wrote The Rhythm of the Night for Elder Barge, How Do I Live, sung by both Leanne Rimes and Trisha Yearwood. And of course, most famously, and probably what they were going for with this show, Don't Want to Miss a Thing from Armageddon. Um, Maybe that is what made Rick Berman think that using this song or this version, which is covered by a actually great English tenor named Russell Watson, who's inexplicably doing an impression of Rod Stewart, maybe that's what made him think that this would sound contemporary and a little hipper than what we'd heard in other Star Trek shows. I'll leave you to decide for yourself if that was more contemporary and hipper in 2000 and, what was that, 2002? Uh, 2001. 2001, they tried. They wanted to be that, and they just made a horrific mistake. This is literally a, a, probably a story of two opening sequences. A real, a, a really clear, very you know visually moving title sequence that that generally works, I think, in that era. And yeah. then you hear the music, and it all unravels. There is just so much that is wrong. And again, it's not the singer. Like I've heard Russell Watson sing other things. He's absolutely a great tenor. Diane Warren, obviously songwriting legend. What goes wrong with this is that it is a bad mixture of content and song. I've got faith of the heart going where my heart will take me. None of that sounds like Trek. And it doesn't, it's not that it doesn't just match with Trek. It doesn't really match with the show that you get. Do you think if Russell Watson had basically sang uh, Patrick Stewart and William Shatner's opening sequence that it would have been any better? No, <laughs> I think that that would have, I, I think we're at Doctor Who 70s and 80s levels of camp there. <laughs> <laughs> And if you haven't actually heard this, and, and there's a reason it's never been aired this way or recorded this way uh, publicly, but actually Gene Roddenberry wrote lyrics to the theme music to the original series. And it's pretty awful. <laughs> Just to bring that up, because that's actually the first lyrical Star Trek theme song is actually the original series one. It's an unused one. Uh, the story that I've heard un- uh, reportedly is that Roddenberry wanted a cut of the music's rights to Star Trek. And in do what he did in order to give himself credit was he wrote lyrics to it. He wrote the lyrics, then struck the lyrics from the mix because he never intended to use it. And that way he would get royalty he would split the royalties with Alexander Courage, which is part of the reason that Alexander Courage never recorded for Trek after that initial run. Interesting. Because he was so upset with Roddenberry basically stealing part of his royalties. Wow. So there's there's your there your song thing. And I do think that the theme song to the original series is worse than Faith of the Heart. If you go out and look, listen to it on YouTube, it's 
it, it's cringeworthy. It's 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 not even like you can listen to Faith of the Heart without watching the title sequence to Enterprise and go, oh, that song's fine. It's just not track, but it's it's fine. Right. You listen to this thing by Roddenberry on its own. Ooh. It does not hold up with or without. <laughs> there is no, there is no going, there is no going back once you heard this thing. So basically, Star Trek goes back to the drawing board with Discovery, literally. Yeah, I think that with Discovery, I think it succeeds at one thing most specifically, uh, being totally unlike any Trek opening before it. Um, I'm gonna admit, I'm waiting for it to grow on me. Um, it just, it just hasn't clicked with me. I'll read off just, a, you know, to give you a little bit of information that I researched. The sequence um, was created by the creative director Anna Criado, and according to reports, she wasn't all that versed in Star Trek before beginning work on the sequence. So it, it developed a theme of blueprints was decided for the sequence to acknowledge that it is a prequel, literally deconstructing Trek iconography. I get that sense, but at the same time, I don't feel it really tells you much about the story that you're about to watch. Yeah, it's not even it's not even like to me a like Deep Space Nine, the first couple seasons. It just feels like an unimpressive version of what the show is about. Right. This just feels like uh, I don't really know Star Trek. Uh, we're going to put some blueprints of things on screen. We're going to have some symbolic things that are sort of iconic within Trek. Um, I think it's actually the first Star Trek title sequence to uh, boldly feature the uh, Starfleet insignia. Like before that, the Starfleet insignia was something you slapped on the side of a ship and on a uniform. Mm-hmm. It's, it's at the point of discovery that the Starfleet insignia becomes like this weird, like bat symbol of Star Trek. Right. It's branding. Yeah, it's this branding. It's in-show branding. And it, and it actually, that was something that was, you know, started to move forward actually with J.J. Abrams' Trek in 2009 because, you know, he famously brought out the first teaser poster, which was literally the Starfleet emblem. And if you look at the uniforms of the J.J. Trek, the detail pattern on the uniforms is actually the Star Starfleet and Starfleet Delta repeated, repeated again and again. Right. So it's almost like the Delta has sort of become its own style by the time you get to Discovery. Like it's like it's somehow some iconic thing. And I don't understand. I personally don't quite get it because it would never was part of the mainstream mainstream of Trek iconography. Right. I think uh, within in universe, if you were to show the Idic, it would probably be a little bit more understandable to a Trek fan. Um, the idea that a phaser is shown and then deconstructed or whatever, it's like like, well, we're about weapons. Now the communicate the communicator looks like a communicator, but everything is given this sort of deconstruction, reconstruction look to it, and we're treated to like these plants in space and this weird tongue. It feels like something out of the animated series. Yeah. Uh, and then the ship kind of, honestly, the, the the ship is so diminutive in most of the shots uh, that it almost feels like the ship is, you know, not so important. The travel, you know, the, the, the vessel itself is not that important of a character in the show. Right. Um, until, it, until, it, until it whizzes by at the end. And then in the whiz by is very unimpressive again. Yeah, because you don't actually get to see the ship. You see a drawing of it. And yeah. in every other series, even Deep Space nine the station was a character in and of itself i'll also point out that this is the first title sequence of star trek not to feature space right there's no space in this in this title sequence it's a drawing it's like parchment paper like every other trek series you see space you see a ship an object traveling through space this one is just things on parchment paper in 3d i was going to point out that it does appear to be the beginning of as we've noted, a different style of Trek opening where it's now going to be not about traveling through space, but more subjectively, what is the subject of the episode, which I can get behind conceptually, uh, not the episode, but of the show. I can get behind that conceptually, but with Discovery, it still doesn't tell you anything. No, I would even say that, you know, following in the footsteps of Game of Thrones at that point, the the title sequence, I think, to most HBO shows, I think most people would agree is that their title sequences are some of the best out there. Yeah. Um, I don't know if they hire one company or two companies or whoever does it or what their deal is, but it seems like every HBO show has, has, has got a very unique special title sequence. And with Game of Thrones in particular, the thing about that sequence is that, you know, we're taken through and, and sort of shown a map of the world so that we get to understand what we're about to see in, a, in an episode. Right. 
and where that and where that map is at, and it updates every season or every couple episodes. Mm-hmm. And with Discovery, this title sequence doesn't really update with the show as much. They do do some updates to it, but they're very few and far between for the changes in the show. Like there are things that are still in the title sequence for sequence three, season three, that haven't been part of the show since season one. Right. And they, yeah, they add things. But there's still le- there's like legacy of things and it, it, it's just um, it, it doesn't really feel like it's being updated. It just feels like it's just like, OK, we need a new iconography for this season so people know it's new. Right. And I guess it also reflects kind of our general feel towards discovery is that it, it tries to take a lot of changes and, and, and differentiate itself from Trek lore. But then it wraps itself with things that it thinks are Trek lore, which really aren't. Yeah. The, the Delta symbol was never the most important thing about Trek lore, it was just, frankly, just a prop and a, a design. And then making that the branding of the show is, again, like wrapping yourself in this thing without actually understanding what it is. With this whole idea, I, you know, of a captain having their catchphrase on how to go to work. Yeah. I was like, Picard said engage. Kirk never said a damn thing. Uh, Cisco... What did he say? Execute? No. No. Uh, Cisco, I, I think he just said engage or he just didn't say yeah, anything. There, he didn't have anything because yeah. it wasn't important. It wasn't important. Just like the Starfleet Delta, it was something on the uniform. We get it. It's recognizable as Starfleet. It's recognizable on the ships. We recognize it as the audience. But it's made, to. it's repeatedly put in there repetitively the way Batman has a bat symbol on his wheels and has it on his, on his cowl. And he has it, you know... On the bat phone. Right. You know, I mean, it, it, it's, it's like everything has to have the bat symbol on it. Now everything has the Starfleet Delta. And, I, and it, it, I don't know, it kind of, in many ways, that kind of starts to cheapen what Star Trek is about because it becomes more about things mm-hmm. and symbols than it becomes about ideas. And it's interesting because we get the same composer for Discovery that we get with Picard. And by the way, I have to say Jeff Russo's music is ab- absolutely fantastic. He's his music, I think, for the titles of Discovery and then later for Picard are, you know, both in their own way, very much of Star Trek. So this is actually kind of the opposite of, you know, what we just saw with Enterprise, where Enterprise, the title sequence feels like, yeah, that's that's Star Trek. I can see Star Trek in there, but I don't hear Star Trek. And this feels like I hear Star Trek, but I don't see it. Right. Now, I, I will say in just kind of jumping over to Picard, some of the things that we complain about Discovery works for Picard because Picard isn't about adventuring through space. It's about a man. It's a deconstruction of who he is. And so what you really see is a crack, a fragment that falls off and flies through various different experiences that will reflect things that will happen in the show and then come to form the piece of the subject of the show. And this is something they did do in Discovery and then Picard, I think, executed it much more eloquently is that there's a shot of an eye in the title sequence for Discovery Mm -hmm. that's trying to look like a planet. And in Picard, they actually make it look like some sort of planetary thing. And then you start to realize it's a cornea. Right. Yeah. The show is really about the fragments and deconstruction of its subject. And I'm curious to see how that title sequence evolves because it feels like that's a title sequence that will evolve. I'll be interested to see how they what they do with it uh, in season two and three of Picard coming up. With the music of Picard, uh, Russo, as we mentioned before, did a fantastic job. But one thing that has to be pointed out is the detail that's put into the music as far as the the use of the Resican flute. Right. And, 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 And McCall back to sort of a a past memory of who Picard is and that contrasting with sort of the somber nature of the music of the show really exemplifies the tone of the show very thoroughly and it feels of Trek and it's interesting that it actually you have just the hints of the Star Trek theme there at the very end Right. Just like you do with Discovery. But it's it's much more subtle. It's played with a f- the flute. But it, it feels like a modern Trek series title sequence as opposed to the symbolism, performative symbolism that we see with Discovery. Right. One thing I noticed about Lower Deck, as I've mentioned before, the ships usually travel or the object, even the camera travels from left to right, as we've described. In Lower Decks, you see the ship. It begins traveling from left to right and then zips back to the left as it's being sucked into a black hole before 
pulling itself out and then going from left to right and then straight towards the camera. Again, you immediately get this sense that this ship is going to screw up like you've never seen any other ship in Star Trek before, but it's going to get things right in the end. One of the things that's interesting to me about the title sequence to Lower Decks is that there are different details of it that feel like an homage or an elaboration on something of a title sequence of previous Trek. Right. Like the very beginning feels like the opening to discuss, uh, Voyager. Mm-hmm. Except we have like rocks hitting the ship hull. Punk, 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 punk. As it gets pulled away into a black hole as opposed to flying by a star so graciously. And it's like the ship just basically escapes on a tail, tail of its chinny chin chin to fly away. And then the next shot, we have it passing by an ice planet. It looks very familiar because it looks almost like the ice planet in the opening to Voyager. And what happens? The ship literally flies so low that it hits a spike of ice and knocks out a warp engine. Yeah. <laughs> right? And in the whole time we're seeing this, they're using a very specifically the next generation font. So it's of that era. It's not using its own font. It's not using a font of Discovery or something similar to that. It's using the specific TNG font, bringing a sense of familiarity to what you're seeing, even if it's just the titles and the names on screen. And that Voyager flyby is mocked, basically. Then we have Borg cubes and Romulans in first season mm. uh, attacking each other. And of course, what happens? The Borg cube fires one shot onto the shields of the, uh, Las, uh, the, the Cerritos, and the Cerritos turns right around on its tail and runs. <laughs> right. This is another instance where it is going towards the right and then turns back to the left. Exactly. I think one of the next sequence is it's traveling towards the left, seemingly normal. And then you have some alien creatures sucking on one of the nacelles that literally turns its eyes to look at the camera as if to say, what are you looking at? Yeah. I mean, we do. And it's and then at that point, actually, it's traveling the wrong direction. Right. Right. Again, this is the story of this ship. By the final sequence, it's traveling finally in the right direction. Again, giving that sense that this is a, a, again, this is the group of misfits. This is your, you know, Dunder Mifflin of of Starfleet. It's interesting because... You know, we actually season two, they actually add the Packlid ships in that shot with the Romulan warbirds and the Borg cube. Right. So we get that. So we get a sense the battle is growing bigger and bigger. So there's there's obviously something that they're changing from season to season because otherwise that title sequence is basically the same. Which, by the way, I don't know if you can hear it, but just very faintly when the ship pulls away from that black hole at the beginning, mm. we actually hear it sounds like for the first time since. I think probably uh, Star Trek Four. We hear we hear the sound effect of that specific warp effect from that era of Trek. Oh, interesting. And and they do go to warp with that that red and blue color scheme that we haven't seen since the original motion pictures. I wouldn't be surprised. And for you listeners, we're going to go in depth into uh, lower decks in another episode of our podcast. Uh, but by and large, I mean, it, it, it does, again, like we said all along, it, it, the title sequence does a fair idea of representing what we're going to get. Obviously, there's been two. They've, we've just completed two seasons of lower decks. And the music also feels like uh, it, it feels like a re- next generation era. It almost feels like Galaxy Quest type of music. Right. The soundtrack to Galaxy Quest, the music for Galaxy Quest is composed by David Newman. David Newman. Thank you. Galaxy Quest is the perfect theme for it. As I'll probably say again in the future, it is like a good natured ribbing from someone who loves you a lot. We have had the opportunity to see the title sequence to Star Trek Prodigy. Yeah, Star Trek Prodigy. And it's the first television series score by Michael Giacchino. Oh, wow. I did not know that. If I recall, this is the first... Um, Family-friendly adventure. Family-friendly adventure. Thank you. So this is going to be the first one since the animated series. And from what we've seen of the score and of the intro, we get a little bit of the new Trek where you think you're flying through space in many of these parts, but you're actually being introduced in a very artistic way to your lead characters. It's very beautiful. The animation is, is you know, as, as beautiful as the, and, and I guess we failed to say that about Lower Decks, the animation is such an upgrade over animated series. Oh, infinitely, infinitely. It's not only that, but the animation in, in Lower Decks is some of the best animation on television today, period. Full stop. Yeah, I totally agree. And Prodigy does feel like uh, it's of that same vein of quality. Um, I, at the time of this recording, we have not seen the title sequence for Strange New Worlds. So if you've seen it now, Congratulations, you're in the future. 
And it's really a kind of a question I want to ask you, Marshall, here at the end. Like, what are you expecting to see out of the title sequence to Strange New Worlds? Are we going to get the throwback that we got out of Lower Decks? Are we going to get something completely new? What do you think we're going to get? If I had to give you my wildest hope and dream for what happens in Strange New Worlds, it's going to be the return of the theremin. Somehow incorporated into the theme song, the return of the theremin. Now I don't want I don't need it to be as prominent as it obviously is in the original series, but just incorporated somewhere in there would be like geek Christmas present, so to speak. It means a lot to you, huh? Not that much, but I, you know, I think it would be it would be fun. I think what I'd really love from Strange New Worlds, and I know that this is really difficult because of the relationship between the films and the television side of Star Trek right now. Um, I've always thought that the Wrath of Khan theme could be re-edited into much the same way as the motion picture theme was re-edited into a TV theme. I've always thought that that would be clever and a nice little callback. But again, I know that that may be difficult or very difficult to do. Um, yeah, there could be some challenges to that. I, I think for me, the, the thing that I most want to see out of this title sequence is I want to see how far they can push what they did with the Voyager title sequence. Mm-hmm. How far can they go with this and making it exciting and vast? I mean, I I would expect it to be along the lines of what we saw at the end title sequence to Star Trek 2009. Right where we get those flybys of these planets. And it does have a comic book look to it in that sequence. Mm -hmm. So I think if they were to go for something that looks a little bit more what I would call NASA realistic. Right. I I think that could be a really powerful uh, title sequence. Now, whether or not they go with a pop song or no song (laughs) or it's just instrumental, I suspect it'll be instrumental. I think the real question that I have, though, is are we going to get a voiceover? Mm, from Ants and Mount. Um, yes. I would like to see that just so that you have that thematic tie. They've been very adamant about this is going to be more in the vein of the original series and TNG, the Star Trek that is now considered classic, with which we're more familiar. Yeah, I mean, there's very, I mean, just take the TNG one and, and run with it. And expand upon it with the technology that we have now, What you know, what Hubble has been able to send back to us. I, 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 so I'm really curious to see what they do with that. Um, I think that's the the title sequence that I'm most intrigued by of all the shows. Like I didn't really think much of before they released Picard of what the title sequence is going to be. I didn't think before Lower Decks, I didn't think much of the title sequence. Um, same with Prodigy. But with Strange New Worlds, that's, that's the one show that's upcoming that I think the title sequence to me, I'm just, I'm, I'm, ex, I'm as curious about that title sequence as I was about the one to Discovery. And I think, you know, as all these shows have shown, our, our, our sort of our large opinions of the show are very much informed by these title sequences. Yeah, the the story begins with the very first shot. Very much so. And with that very last shot, here's the I'm saying my very last shot to everybody out there. Thank you for listening to us here on Story Trek for this episode. It's, you can of course follow us online at Story Trek Story underscore Trek on Twitter, or find us on Facebook at Story Trek MM. That's M for Marshall, M for Michael. I'm Michael Sertigakis. I'm Marshall Hopkins. Live long and prosper, and watch another Trek series title sequence. <laughs>